Today we're uh, continuing this series on community. We'll be thinking about that throughout the month of January and February. And in particular, I want us to think about the, the aspect of community that's contained in friendship. What is friendship? How do we think about it? What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say about friendship? To that end, we'll be in the letter of Paul to the Philippians today, the very beginning, chapter 1, if you want to turn there, Philippians 1. I can still remember my excitement in third grade when our teacher told us at the beginning of the year that we were going to have pen pals that year. How many of you ever had a pen pal as a kid you exchanged letters with? We were paired up with another student across town in a different school, and every few weeks, you know, we would have to write a letter, but that also meant a letter would appear on our desks one morning, and we would get to open it up and read it, and those letters were often decorated with scratch and sniff stickers. You remember scratch and sniff? Or some kind of third grade artwork, uh, drawings of all sorts of different kinds stuffed in those envelopes. And for our teacher, I know this was sort of a covert way of teaching us the art and etiquette of letter writing. But for us as third graders, we just thought it was awesome to get mail of any kind. Right? We, were, we were pumped to do it. It didn't matter if we had to do some work along the way. And along, along the way, we learned something about how friendly communication happens. Right? What, are, what are the, the, the mediums and the modes that we use to communicate with friends? Well, of course, these days, letter writing has largely given way to other forms of communication. Oh, that all went pretty fast. Let's see if I can get back here. There we go. For my generation, we quickly abandoned letter writing to adopt email. That was kind of coming in line or online as I hit high school. And then email quickly gave way to instant messaging and texting. And I now understand those, those forms of communication are being surpassed by more image-driven communication, things like Instagram and Snapchat. The way that we connect, the way we communicate with our friends greatly depends on the culture we live in and the technologies available to us. So it would make sense that, you know, we're looking in the forward direction how things have been changing. But if we looked back past my, my uh, elementary school years, past, you know, even the last few centuries, deeper into history we would also see that communication between friends looked different. There were different technologies. And that was partly because letter writing and communicating was far more difficult and far more expensive the further back in history you go. If we want to move back to you know, ancient times, the first century, the, the times that, that surround uh, the Bible in which we read. At that time and point in history, to compose a formal letter would typically require hiring someone to assist you. Right? Even if you were literate and, and well-read, you would often hire a scribe to help you compose the letter, to help you frame your thoughts, and to draft that letter on parchment. 
And that process was not cheap. According to a few historians' estimates, in the first century, if you wrote a letter of, say, five to ten pages, that would be the equivalent of $500 to $1,000 in cost to you today, just to hire that scribe to help you compose the letter. And then you still had to deliver the letter, and there was no postal service to deliver it. Right? You had to send it with someone you trusted to take it where it needed to go. So letter writing wasn't something you did just on a whim, right? You didn't spend a thousand bucks to send someone an emoji, right? You you had to think about what you were going to say, why you were saying it. And so Cicero lived in the first century BC. He was a great orator, a great writer, a great statesman in the Roman world. He insisted that friends, when they wrote letters to each other, shouldn't waste their time reciting mundane matters. He said, if you're going to write a letter, you should, you should be intentional. You should probe serious. You should probe weighty issues in your communication. Right? If you're paying by the word, you, you want to make everything count. And so if that was the way letter writing functioned in the ancient world, it's interesting to, to bring that then to bear on the way we think about the New Testament we pick up here on Sunday mornings. The New Testament, really, much of it is a collection of these ancient and intentional and very expensive letters exchanged between these early church communities, right, in in Europe and in Asia Minor and in the ancient Near East. And they reflect to us the conventions of a friendly conversation that existed at that time. But I think they also, in a few critical areas, are unique. The New Testament letters are unique because the communities of the New Testament were unique. Right? These people were drawn together into friendship, but that friendship centered around the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that lordship, that, that call, that mission, that vision slowly transformed in their minds what it meant to be friends, to be a community. Today we take our first step into a letter that Paul spent his own time, his own money, in order to send to a group of his friends. And they're a group of friends, a community living in the city of Philippi. Last week, We read about the beginnings of that friendship, how that community, how that church came into being in Acts 16. You remember back to last week, Paul arrives in Philippi. He meets with Lydia and and this this group of, of women, Gentile converts to Judaism. They begin to pray. They begin to worship. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They respond, and they bring Paul into their household. Right From there, Paul is ministering in Philippi. There's some conflict that takes place. Paul and his friends are quickly arrested. And then God moves again. From the prison, an earthquake happens. Paul and his friends are are released or set free, but they encounter the jailer. And the jailer is brought uh, into a relationship with Jesus. Again, there's hospitality that ensues. Paul and his friends come into the jailer's home. And And there are all these pockets of community and friendship and 
and gospel sort of transformation taking place in Philippi. But then Paul has to leave. If we read through the rest of Paul's letters, we can piece together that over the years, Paul returned to Philippi at least a handful of different times. And he had this great friendship with the church there. The Philippians gave sacrificially to Paul in his mission. The the Philippians gave sacrificially to other churches that were springing up throughout the world. And when Paul was in trouble, the Philippian friends often came to Paul's help, to his aid. The Philippians were Paul's true friends. And about a decade after Paul first showed up in Philippi, Paul now finds himself in Rome. Paul is imprisoned, and he is awaiting trial in Rome. He's going to stand trial before Nero Caesar, who wasn't a particularly kind person when it came to the Christian church. And history would tell us that that trial Paul's waiting for isn't going to go the way he hopes, or the Philippian church hopes. But as he's waiting in that difficult time, guess what? The people, the friends Paul has in Philippi come through yet again. They hear about Paul's imprisonment and they send one of their members, Epaphroditus, from Philippi to Rome to be with Paul, to minister to him, to care for him, probably to help with some of the health concerns Paul has as he waits trial. And as Epaphroditus is there for a period of time, he's preparing to go back to Philippi. And on that return journey, Paul now chooses to send a letter with him. Right, from one friend to his community of friends in Philippi. And that's the letter we now have today called Philippians. As we begin reading that letter this morning, here's the question I want to ask today. What is the vision of friendship communicated in this letter? In particular, what does Paul say about the nature of their connection, their community, their friendship with each other? And then from that, we could ask ourselves, how does that vision of friendship, the New Testament vision of friendship, how could that deepen, how could that challenge How could that redirect the kind of friendships we have here in this place? So with that lens kind of in front of us, let me invite us to pray together and then to read Philippians 1 together. Jesus, we confess you are Lord. You are our risen Savior, our Redeemer. You are glorious and and far above us. But we also think of the words that we began worship with this morning. That you've also called us your friends. Called us to share in your mission. To share in all the things you desire to do. Lord, I pray as we receive your word, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 1, we'll start out verses 1 through 8. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, literally slaves of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see in those first few verses even this this idea of community. Paul and Timothy together as a community, together in their fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, they're sending greetings to this community in Philippi. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the beginning of Paul's letter to his friends. And I think there are a handful of things motivating Paul to write this particular letter. Near the top of that list is a profound sense of of gratitude, of joy. Look at how he communicates. He says, From his very first days in their city, these friends have had Paul's back. Right? These friends, remember, they housed him. They gave him a place to stay. They fed Paul. They risked their own necks to provide a place for Paul to teach and to preach about Jesus in their city. Paul is thankful. He's deeply grateful. And so it's, I think, more than just flowery or formal language in verses 3, 4, and 5, where Paul says, every time I remember you guys, I give thanks to God. I think this is a sincere overflow of Paul's affection and heart. He says, when you come to my mind in prayer, I experience great joy in the presence of God. He says that joy is because from the first day, from the first day he showed up in Philippi until ten years later when he writes this letter, he says, you have been my partners in the gospel. You could circle that word in verse 5, partnership, if you want. You put an asterisk by it in the text. It's a significant, I think, idea about what what Paul imagines friendship to be in Jesus. For you and I, friendship can often mean just simply sharing a common interest in something with another person. We have friends who have the same hobbies we do. We're friends with people who root for the same football team we do. We have friends who went to the same school we went to. But, but those kind of friendships based on acquaintance, based on an interest, that, that's a good place to start 
but, but friendship often remains pretty, pretty surface level until we were asked not just to share what we like with another person, but we actually share our life with another person. Right? That's, that's a different dimension of friendship. There's an old proverb that says you don't really know a person until you've done business with them. I'm not a, a business person, but I think I, I get the sense of that because the people who really know me are people I've worked alongside of. Right? People who've had to challenge me in some way. People who've, who've seen me risk, who've seen me fail, who've seen my shortcomings, who've made sacrifices together with me. And that kind of partnership, that kind of friendship is what the New Testament calls koinonia. And it's the word Paul uses here in verse 5. Because of your partnership, because of your koinonia, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says we've had partnership. We've We've shared together, we've participated together in the work of the gospel. We've participated in the person of Jesus Christ together. And Paul says, that's one of the deepest joys of my life. Whenever I think about it, I am moved with joy. And so as you look around the room this morning, as you see the faces around you in the pews, I hope that you see in them at least a handful of people you would call friends. My question for you this morning is, would you also call them partners? Have you actually shared you know, a significant portion of your life together? Have you endeavored to share something bigger, something life-giving, something of kingdom magnitude with each other in partnership? I think I'm continually amazed that that when friendship moves beyond just liking someone, just sharing something in common with someone, but instead moves toward this place of partnership, of mutual risk, of transparency, of vulnerability, of purpose, it opens up new layers of of affection and connection with that person. When we share more together than, than... then that partnership, that friendship deepens. Look at the way Paul speaks in verses 7 and 8 about the kind of connection that happens in this friendship because they're partners. He says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way, which he means to feel joy, to feel love, to feel gratitude whenever I think of you. And he says, whether I'm 800 miles away in Rome, in a prison, can't move, can't come to you from that place, whether I'm there or whether God allows me to return and be with you in person, in the ministry of the gospel, he says, whatever the case, we participate, we share, we partner in Jesus. We're rooted in him together. And so he says in verse 8, I long for you with the affection of Christ. And I think he means by that that the love he has for his friends is actually coming from the, the real presence of Jesus living in him. Jesus is the center port, 
center point. He's the, he's the, the wellspring of this friendship and partnership they have together. Jesus is the bond they experience. And that, that longing he has to be close to them, to be with them, to partner with them, he says, is actually the, the movement of Jesus, the movement of the Holy Spirit through him and through their friendship. But as we move into verses 9, 10, and 11, we're also reminded that, that yes, there's a partnership, yes, there's affection, yes, there is love and joy in this friendship, but the friendship has a purpose. And it's not static. It's not just for the sake of, of feeling good about it. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul says, and this is my prayer. This is my prayer for you, my friends. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You might have a greater love that leads to knowledge and a deeper insight, verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In many ways, these three verses are, are going to encapsulate the kind of teaching, the, the sort of outline of where Paul goes in the rest of this letter. He's going to challenge his friends to grow deeper in their maturity and friendships with one another. About once every month or two, my wife Katie sits in on a video call with several of her roommates from college. They're friends of hers that, that go back more than 20 years now. And I, I don't sit in on those conversations. Usually they're in a different room. But after they talk together, after Katie spends time for an hour or two with these friends, there is this great joy, this incredible affection, this palpable sense of, of the Holy Spirit's presence and, and goodness that I can sense in Katie as she comes back and, and shares with me what's going on. And I think so much of that is because, as friends, they've worked through difficult things together. They haven't taken those friendships just for granted. They've loved, they've laughed, they've suffered, they've cried, they've supported and challenged each other through some pretty hard stuff in the past 20 years. And they've risked speaking difficult and, and challenging things to one another at times. I said a few minutes ago that I think Paul writes to the Philippians partly from a sense of gratitude and joy for these friends in Philippi. But I think more than that, Paul is also writing from a place of concern, a place of, of challenge, a place where he wants to, to move his friends forward and deeper into maturity. Paul senses that his friends in Philippi need to be challenged. They need to be encouraged to see more clearly how the way of Jesus reshapes friendship, reshapes community, reshapes the way we, we interact with each other. I think it's from Paul's desire to push his friends toward this greater place of maturity that he prays for them here in verses 9, 10, and 11. Look at the pieces of that prayer. 
Verse 9, he asks that all the love and the affection that they share as friends, that that love and affection might result in a greater knowledge and depth of insight, that, that love would move them to a clarity, a discernment, a deep knowing. In other words, he's asking that their love wouldn't just be about having warm fuzzies and nostalgia as friends, but that from that place of love, they would understand with increasing clarity what it means to live the gospel with each other. What it means to live in the way of Jesus. And then verse 10, he says, I pray that your love would compel you from this place of greater clarity, greater insight, to discern what is best. To discern what are the better ways that Jesus has shown us. What does it mean to walk in the way of Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah? So that you might be filled, you might be bountiful with the fruit of of right living that comes from walking in his way. So the first part, I think Paul tells us that, that friendship builds upon and speaks into one another's lives through partnership. But so too, friendship also then matures through real challenge. As Dom has said several times in his Sunday school class already this month, the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, and the way of the world, they're they're like roads going in two different directions much of the time. They have really different ideas about what is best, about what it means to love another person, what it means to hold power, what it means to serve another human being. And in Philippi in particular, this people, group of friends Paul's writing to here, we have a bunch of Greek Gentile people living in a Roman city. And they're receiving all sorts of different messages about about what the good way of life is. They live in a city where almost every formal event would be preceded by by great pomp and splendor and and proclamation of the lordship and glory of Nero Caesar. This is the way things happen in a Roman city. And what it means to to be powerful and to be attached and to be a a client of of, of Nero Caesar so, so that you might get the benefits of being important in the Roman world. But remember, this group of people, Paul's friends, have been changed. They have come into a place where now Jesus is their Lord. Jesus is the one they're aiming to follow. And somehow in in the mix of their culture and in the environment in which they live and all the messages they're receiving, Paul wants them to know what it means to follow King Jesus. And that's difficult. That's messy. Sometimes the highway of our personal preference, our individualism, our ego, our desire to be in control, sometimes that way runs right through the middle of our churches. And instead, the pathway of Jesus feels like a diversion, like like a difficult, a narrow way to walk. Sometimes it feels like the way of Jesus the servant is almost empty, almost abandoned, even in our church lives spoke with someone recently who shared with me how many years ago they had been deeply hurt in Christian community. 
They went through a very difficult time in their life. And through the things they were experiencing, they longed to to have their Christian friends embrace them, listen patiently to them, stand next to them in that time. But instead, at least their experience in that season was that most of their Christian friends either ignored what they were going through or misunderstood it or felt uncomfortable walking in that place with them. And that in turn led them into deeper loneliness, deeper isolation. I thought the lordship of Jesus can't just be something we talk about. It can't just be something we read books about, Paul says. Friendship with Jesus has to confront the politics, has to confront the problems, has to confront the, the real difficulty and suffering and resistance of the places in which we live. And so Paul says twice in these first 11 verses that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to lead us into partnership, into relationship with each other, so that we're being made ready for the day that Jesus will return, anticipating his kingdom coming in fullness. So friendship means partnership. Friendship means willing to challenge one another. And so that, to that end, I want to give you two challenges as you leave here today. Two points that I want you to reflect on your set of friendships within the body of Christ. Firstly, you know, brainstorm a list of, of five or ten people. Who are your friends in this place? Who are people that you've begun to share life with in some way? You can visualize them in your head. You can write them down on your bulletin if you're taking notes. Who are your friends in this place? And with those friends in mind, what would it look like to have a greater sense of partnership with them? How could you share more than just acquaintance, more than just what you like together? How could you share life together in in a greater way? How could your lives overlap, intersect in, in natural ways, in the places, in the things that you do in the way that you, you serve and grow together. What would a greater sense of partnership look like with those friends? And then, along with that, what would need to happen in those friendships so that you could actually challenge one another? You could speak truth to one another. You could, you could call one another a little further down that road of the way of Jesus, the best ways of Jesus together. How could you be intentional about pursuing maturity in that friendship? I want to pray for us in these areas. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have given us each other with great purpose. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our growth in the gospel to make us ready for the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray you would give us today a a sense of what it might look like to step forward in friendship, to not take those things for granted, but to be intentional as disciples, as friends, as people who you've shared your heart with. Help us to challenge one, one another appropriately. 
And Lord, as we do that, help us to remember that we do that because you have first chosen us. You have pursued us. And you are committed to the work of community. You're committed to the work of friendship and growth. As Paul says, we are confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus' return. We pray these things in your name. Amen.